Welcome to Making Conversations, a podcast from makers Gemma Millen and Robin Galway. Today we are making conversations with contemporary jeweller Lotus DeWitt as part of our ACJSNI collaboration. Hello Lotus, it's wonderful to speak with you today for this final episode in our collaborative series with ACJSNI. Could you tell us how you got started in the craft sector? Hi Gemma and Robin. Hi. Thanks so much for doing this series. I've really loved listening to all the episodes so far. Well, I got started in the craft sector through going to art college and I went to Belfast School of Art and did foundation year there. I did not think I was going to end up in craft. I really wanted to do sculpture. I really had my mind and my heart really set on fine art and doing sculpture in particular. And I had a really wonderful tutor in foundation called Bill Saunders, who's a fantastic artist. I love his work. I don't know if you know it, but he makes the most fantastic sculptures. Probably made me even more passionate about sculpture, but I couldn't make anything bigger than maybe 10 centimetres. I really tried and I always in my mind thought I was making maquettes for sculptures, you know, that, oh, I can make these bigger, but I just really couldn't do it. I couldn't scale up anything because I felt really overwhelmed as soon as the scale started to get bigger than that. And so Bill kept pushing me or suggesting in his way that I should do jewellery. And, you know, you get to in foundation year, I don't know if it's still like that, but we used to do like a taster in different disciplines. So he sent me down to jewellery, which I kind of thought was awful because in my mind jewellery was like fashion or something something I had absolutely no interest in and I was kind of reluctant but went down and tried it out and I really loved it. Of course he was just so right about that because it's the techniques, the scale and all the processes. I really loved working with all of that and it was just the perfect environment and I really love working with inert materials. I get very frustrated if I have to work with textiles or clay or something that's soft and hard to control and messy like inert materials you can finish them you can be precise you can I don't know it's just wonderful to work with (laughs) I think you know I think most makers have that attraction to a certain type of material that just suits them then after I ended up doing my degree in jewellery and silversmithing and following that I went and worked with Dr Sarah McAleer who had a contemporary jewellery gallery in Hollywood at the time And she was just one of the most generous people I've ever met in terms of the time she took to teach us, teach us proper jewellery, goldsmithing techniques in her workshop. She had a workshop alongside the gallery, as well as it was just a perfect combination of being exposed to contemporary jewellers in her gallery and then working alongside that in her workshop. So she did mainly commission work, but she also had some production work that she did, ranges for the gallery. I did that for a bit and also did the Making It programme with Crafts and I for two years, which at the time supported you with the studio for two years while you set up your own practice. And then alongside that, I worked in Spacecraft with CDC, with Jan Irwin. And so it was kind of a good mixture of working in galleries, doing exhibition work and then doing my own practice. I did kind of a mixture of a bit of retail jewellery, you know, had a small range of shops and galleries that I supplied and then did bits and pieces in terms of working for other jewellers and goldsmiths. I think after that, the longer I worked in spacecraft and the gallery, the more I kind of stopped doing my own work because I got sucked into the craft sector in particular. And I come from a background of 
living and working in communities. So I really, I think it's kind of natural for me to be drawn into that. And I actually, to be honest, get a lot of my energy from that. I really like anything that builds community, anything where people come together, you know, to try and make something. I just really enjoyed working with such a range of craftspeople and doing the exhibitions and selling the work and building up relationship with customers and things. And I did that for a long time, maybe too long because it sort of really took me away from my own work. But it was at the same time, I really did enjoy being part of that. So would you say that that built-in community spirit is perhaps what has drawn you to participate in the group of ACJSNI then? Yeah, definitely. So I used to be an ACJ member Many, many years ago, before the current group, we used to have a regional ACJ group when Dr. Sarah McAleer had her gallery in Hollywood. We did exhibitions in her gallery and the original ACJ group that we had sort of dwindled a little bit because it was difficult. A lot of the people who were leading it and our chair at the time, Sarah didn't really have the time alongside her own practice because these groups take a lot of energy and time. And it is very difficult to run that alongside your own art practice and geocreative business. And I think the other challenge was that a lot of the members were sort of geographically spread and it's difficult. You know, it, it then it relied a lot more on meeting up in person. You know, we didn't have Zoom and we didn't have the online resources we have now. Social media and all those things were pretty much non-existent in except just more primitive forms. So and then after we had the ACJ group, I think the next group I was involved in was probably with Robin and Shannon. We set up AGN, which is the Art Jewellery Network. And that was just the three of us, but it was just a lovely group because we actually achieved a lot. Thinking back on it, Robin, I think we did quite a lot of things with our tiny group and limited resources. We did quite a few exhibitions. We did an international exhibition exchange project with Finland as well because of Robin's connections there. I think because we were a smaller group, it was almost easier you know we were closer to having just come out of graduation than we are now at least and I think we were just so motivated by going to shows I feel like there was much more of a not an unprofessionalism but like a zest you know like a freedom just to try and get momentum with AJN and it was just so lovely to start it up with both of you. I think that is part of the bit that gives me energy when groups kind of start off and when you have that energy and before things become overly professional or structured there is a different type of energy I think a lot of amazing things came out of CDC I think like AGN was part of that and a lot of different groups kind of grew out of it you know like Mac 9 and things that were genuinely creative and really artist-led and I think that's what I find the most interesting I love projects and groups where it's just a bunch of different creative people coming together and you kind of give each other energy and feedback and momentum because everyone has different stages you know in their own creativity where they're like maybe on a project they're just at that high of like oh I'm really excited about new techniques and new things I'm doing or new exhibition pieces and then at the other end you know they've just finished an exhibition and there's that vacuum of like oh I've put all that effort into that and now I feel kind of lost in my creative space and if you're part of a group like this it's just the perfect support network and boost you know because you're not left in that vacuum in your own studio wondering how you're going to do the next project it's feeding off each other all the time and sharing ideas and yeah just supporting each other I think is the best part of it 
Just to take it back a little bit to your practice, I wanted to know more about your own interactions with jewellery before your education. So with doing the degrees, especially where you're producing work, it really gives you the opportunity to reflect on those previous and past exposures to those materials, objects or those pieces of jewellery, for example. Would you say you would have had any huge influences growing up that had maybe quite sneakily led you towards choosing jewellery, although you said that you were definitely more towards the sculptural elements of whenever you were going through your education. I know this is a bloody massive question. <laughs> yeah, no, um, no, I get what you're saying. Were there any kind of little influences that now looking back you can say, oh yeah, actually maybe, you know, the interest was there a lot sooner than you thought? Yeah, I think growing up I definitely had I had a lot of creative interests and a passion for creativity, but definitely not towards jewellery specifically. I mean, I don't think that would have ever crossed my mind. I grew up in the Netherlands. I'm Dutch originally, and I went to Steiner School and grew up in a very creative kind of communal living situation where I was constantly exposed to different, well, definitely craft disciplines. But in Steiner School, you know, art is valued the same as science or any other subject. In fact, you use creativity in all your subjects. And I think that definitely had a big influence on me. And it also, you know, I'm a visual thinker and I can't imagine doing anything without creativity. I mean, any job requires creative thinking, I think. It seemed kind of natural to me, so that probably had a big influence. And do you remember learning an awful lot of craft, like, I mean, from an early age? I grew up in Campbell communities, which there are always a lot of creative workshops in a Campbell. So, for example, basket making or woodworking. I think growing up in that environment, you know, you learn a lot of skills, you get to experiment a lot and work and do things with your hands constantly. So yeah, that, I'm sure that had a huge influence on what I do now or why I went into a more creative route. Seemed kind of inevitable, really. I couldn't imagine doing something that wasn't creative, you know, studying something serious. Yeah, I know. I often wonder what would be your alternative universe, alter ego or something, you know, what would... Oh, that's that's easy. I, if I had the brains, I'd 100% be an entomologist. That would be so fascinating. I'd love to do that. What even is that? Yeah. That's a big word. I... Oh, uh, <laughs> studying insects. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, that <laughs> yeah, totally makes I'd sense. I'd love to do that, yeah. I was just going to ask what influences your work, because obviously your work's so beautiful and quite is quite sculptural and intricate. I mean, that feeds naturally into your alternative life as a, what is it, an, entom an entomologist? Yeah, an entomologist. I, I don't know. Entomologists are like people who I just really admire. And I think, God, look at those geniuses and they know everything about bugs. How fascinating. You know, I'd love to make friends with an entomologist and just follow them around and like <laughs> get to learn all about their, um, yeah, yeah, just learn. Oh, all you just know them. that there's one of them that is just sitting at home thinking, God, I would love to make friends with a silversmith or a jeweler. You know, <laughs> this is like oh, a perfect collaboration. <laughs> yeah. Could you do a call out on the podcast and get us connected? That would be great. If you're an entomologist at home listening and want to get involved in jewellery, contact us. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, Gemma, like you with, you know, that project you did with a kind of medical crossover. Yeah, so yeah. If we're talking about this, we should get Heather McFadden on board because her insects are just incredible. Oh, yeah. They're just so beautiful. I love her work brilliantly, yeah. you know. Oh, she had a piece in the pinned exhibition, which was last year. Was it a stick insect? 
Yeah, she had three three bugs in her last exhibition, or yeah, not last, but yeah, last year's exhibition, and they're just brilliant. But she is a fantastic narrative jeweler. You know, she has lots of different objects, jewelry objects that she makes that you just get so sucked in because they're incredible. They're they're always based on some kind of story, but yeah, love her work. Great example of a jewelry insect crossover there. Yeah, and I'm sure you're very aware of any other jewellery crossovers with insects as well, because your work is especially, when it comes to mind, these little tea strainers that you produced. Could you talk to us a little bit about those and about how this fascination of insects or or little bugs then became a part of your jewellery practice? Yeah, I feel a bit awkward talking about my practice because I, for many years, kind of put all my energy into work in the gallery and working in the craft sector, but not necessarily focusing on my own work. So the last year, I've slowly been getting back to doing my own things, and it's taken a lot of time. And I think when you do that, when you step away from your practice for a while, not making regularly, you know, well, I can only speak for myself, but I find it really difficult to get back into my maker's identity. I think I always, when I did make full time, I always felt like there was kind of a split in my work. There was the ranges that I would make that were insect inspired and or bug inspired and more narrative jewellery. And then I also had ranges that were really minimalist and sort of more sculptural. And they actually really didn't go together and they were kind of opposing in a way. I never really resolved that, I think. Now that I've come back, I feel like I've got a little bit of a more cohesive identity as a maker, just being older, I guess, you know, and having looked at so much craft for so many years maybe helps as well, because you don't really stop thinking. For me, there's a real disconnect between thinking and making. When I sit down and I've had so much time to think about everything, and then when I actually physically work through a piece, like I have to think through making, you know, think three-dimensionally, and then I see what I've actually made. It's a whole new thing. You know, it's like a whole third thing, category or something. I don't know how to explain it. My insect inspiration, I think, naturally fits with jewellery because insects are really fascinating. You know, they are, if you think of like an exoskeleton, you know, it's all the soft bits are on the inside and all the hard bits are on the outside. It's kind of the opposite to us as mammals, but it lends itself really well to metal because an insect is made up of lots of little units and you can kind of create a similar sort of structure in metal quite easily. A just mixture of sheet and wire, you can create things that, I don't know, I think that the two just work really well together. You can see sometimes if you look at metalsmithing or jewellery where someone's created something really organic and flowing, it takes a lot to sort of make metal look natural, whereas insects or something like that really, I don't know, I think metal is kind of the perfect material to express that. I think as I've only really had probably even just one opportunity to work in metal or to work in jewellery, I've done a little workshop with Diane Linus. But it was to make your own little silver rings and things. And I just completely fried my brain. I think coming from a clay ceramics perspective where you add heat, it changes its whole composition to a very solid structure and it's no longer malleable again. But then in metal, it was the complete opposite. You know, you're adding heat and you're making it malleable, you know, and that was just like working in reverse or something, you know, it was and then not being able to just manipulate it so easily can sometimes take such an immediate force to make an imprint. I'm sure there are definitely ways and methods that you can very easily make a mark in metal, but just from a clay perspective, it is so much more difficult to do that in metal. 
So that's is a good example of why the disciplines are so different. I think with jewellery, you have to be very methodical and you can't skip steps. You have to do it properly. You sort of feel when you're in a natural flow of going through anything from soldering to polishing. You can't take a shortcut. You have to sort of go through it properly. You have to have the patience and the metal doesn't always exactly react the same way. Yeah, I think each material has its own language. You know, with clay, I really tried a tiny bit of clay because we have a pottery in Camp Hill and I've done a little tiny bit of throwing and it was really good fun, but I find it really, um, I don't know, stressful. <laughs> like it's a material that moves so much and it's just so messy and you've got just a, a completely different language. Oh, it's a full attack of the senses being on the pottery wheel, I think. So, Lonis, as a co-creator with Shannon McShane on the Collectibles and Curiosities exhibition, is there anything that you really liked about how you created the work in the space? Or is there anything that when you're getting, you know, a response back and feedback that you would maybe have changed about the exhibition? I think any project or exhibition it's a lot of work and it always is more work than you expect and I think for this exhibition because it was an international exhibition and we did an open call and we hadn't quite done it like this before in terms of you know accepting applications from absolutely anywhere in the world it was a real variety of applications and just such a wide range of in terms geographically where everyone came from there were a lot of challenges there and we really did try to prepare you know in terms of making sure we had all the information for customs and all um, the challenges that come with that and Shannon and I worked together on that and tried to cover every eventuality but you know until you kind of do your project you don't really know what is going to happen and I think for each project that we do with ACJ, we have an evaluation sheet at the end where we fill in, you know, these were the bits that we need to think about for the next project that we know, oh, we're not going to make the same mistakes. And I think it's easy to sort of be put off from trying projects or overthinking it because you think, oh, this is going to be really challenging. But then you end up doing nothing. So sometimes you just have to try it and just do it. As ACJ, you know, we're a small voluntary based group and any projects that we do, we within the group, we ask who would like to lead the project or do particular roles within the project. And um, Shannon and I put ourselves forward to co-curate the projects and project manage it. And even small projects, it's amazing how much work there is, you know, from the call out stage to selection to all the admin and communication with all the different makers and applications and just making sure that everything's done professionally. Because when you do a call out for an exhibition, you're really asking for makers to put a lot of trust in you, especially for this exhibition. Most of the makers didn't know us at all. And it's incredible that they've all trusted us to send their work to be part of the exhibition. I think that's amazing. It's a really positive thing, but also means that we have to be really careful that we do things properly and we are really careful with the work and we display it in a way that does it justice and can be challenging because obviously the selection is done virtually. We don't actually see the physical work. So you don't really know. You can sort of plan ahead and try and make sure that you have an idea of how you're going to display everything, making sure you take into account, you know, security and value and also making sure that you can represent the work in a way that the artist wants it represented. It can be quite challenging, but that's also a lot of fun, I think. And it's a really great way to build community. I mean, I think this has been a fantastic project with all the connections we've made internationally. And the fact that a couple of participants were able to come over. I think Rosie Deegan is, you know, she's doing her artist talk with us the 12th of January. She's been a, a wonderful person to get in touch with. She came over for the exhibition from England. And then Carmen Lopez, another participant, came over from Spain and 
you know, through communicating with all the different participants from all over the world, we've had a really interesting insight into contemporary jewellery in all those different regions. It's just been fascinating. It's the bit that gives me the most energy, I think, doing projects like this. Yeah, I can't wait for our trip to Munich together. It's going to be so exciting. I'm tagging along as an honorary jeweler. I'm going to throw away my clay loyalties and appreciate all that comes with Munich Jewellery Week. In terms of object design is a big part of it as well. And there is a wide range of materials. It'll be really fascinating. I think you'll probably get a lot out of it. I think that's definitely what's been missing a lot as well. It's just exposure to craft. You know, I think with over the pandemics and so on, it's just been very easy to absorb your craft exposure online. And I think after a while, that just becomes pretty stale. You can almost be maybe a bit desensitised to it. And so physically going places and physically seeing actual objects, like Cloda mentioned this in her episode there previously, where she spoke about touching pieces and the tactile qualities that come alongside that. And how that can help you so much understand the piece. But there's so much to be said for that, as well as actually seeing it in person as well. Definitely. I mean, we're makers, so tactility is so important. Seeing things virtually is really not the same. It's kind of like a flat energy, isn't it? Like when you see something in real life, it's just so much more fascinating. And you don't really get a sense of materials unless you see it up close. And hopefully get to touch and play with things. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lotus DeWitt, for joining us and having a lovely conversation with us. We are now going to hear maker clips from participants of the Collectibles and Curiosities exhibition. These are Elena Stukovshova Dolezhulova, Anna Osboylan, and Taylor Fens. My name is Elena Stukovcová Dolezhulova. I am a jewelry and puppet designer based in Jablonec nad Nisou, a small town in northern Bohemia. My two-finger ring, exhibited on collectibles and curiosities, is named Be Good and Play. The ring itself is a game. The goal is to get a small steel ball from the upper amber bowl through the funnel and into the labre one. It's not easy, as the balls like to jump out of the funnel and don't often fall through on the first attempt. Patience and concentration are needed. The idea for the ring was based on my childhood memories. I remember the little plastic toys and small games where a ball ran through a labyrinth or through an obstacle course with bridges and holes. They were so small that they could be carried in one's pocket. I recall getting these from my grandmother whenever I managed to do something really good. It has been a long time since I haven't received one in years. The ring is made of three different materials. Sterling silver, bronze and Baltic amber and with the use of three techniques. Hammering, etching and carving. I created a supporting frame from thick hammered sterling silver wire and a little piece of silver tube. The decorative outer circles of both rings are made of deeply etched and patinated bronze. I sculpted it using hot ferric nitrate because I never use aggressive acids in my workshop. I achieved the patina using ammonia and salt. The bronze element is significant because it optically increases the sense of stability of the ring and creates color harmony with the amber bows. For the carved elements, 
the two bowls and funnel. I choose amber for its warm and honey-like appearance. Amber is a soft, light, partly transparent and happy-looking material. The bowls are fixed in a silver bed and a single silver tube passes through the central one. It is through this tube that the all-important balls fall. These little steel balls, which are originally used in the tumbler to polish jewelry, are a crucial component of the ring. They are the moving element, without which the ring would not function. I tried to achieve the simplest possible form, because the system itself is quite complicated. The decorative function here is only performed by the surface treatment, which is in contrast with the smoothness and transparency of the amber. I encountered only one problem during production. This was when I had to revert the middle amber funnel, as amber is fragile and cracks easily. Luckily for me, it didn't happen. This ring is a symbol of nostalgia for me. It is an extravagant piece of jewelry, a tool for practicing attention, patience and fun. We all need a laugh. My name is Anne Earls Boylan and I make jewelry in response to questions and concerns about our environment and curiosity about human behaviour and values. Scale and wearability of jewellery itself allows it to become a language, one that translates the emotions between the inner and the outer emotions of the self. It's almost like a boundary between the private body and the public image or representation of the self. There's a freedom within that that allows a jeweler to make pieces that can indicate more of the spirit and character of a person who would choose to wear the work and that can sometimes be quite rebellious. The works in Collectibles and Curiosities draw on articles and ideas and reflections, personal reflections on making. For me, Materials and processes become actors and they represent a constructed hierarchy, one that's set up to pit the hand against the machine. Skill and artistry of making goes well beyond practical concerns. To add values, it must have meaning and some sense of the context the work was made within. The bright colours of the laser-centred forms are loaded with symbolism. They refer to both religious and gendered histories, past and present. Like an Elizabethan portrait or a religious icon, the prints have been embellished with precious and semi-precious stones and metals. To wear these pieces is to invite conversation. And over time, these conversations become stories and embedded within the memory of piece of work and the event and the time. And that's a really magical part of making a jewel. My name is Taylor Fens. I'm originally from Indiana in the United States. I'm currently based out of Delaware in the US. I have three pieces in the Collectibles and Curiosities exhibition. Collector's Collar, 
collector's locket and counterbalance. And all three lockets are out of a collection of lockets that I call curious lockets. The curious locket collection is currently ongoing. Each locket is based off of some aspect of the experience of collecting. This next part might go without saying in many parts of the world that have a longer history in arts and craft, but in America, many people still put a divide between art and craft, and certain areas of craft are only just now beginning to take the opportunity to try and take that line away. And I think the art jewelry movement that's finally gaining traction a bit in the United States is doing a really good job at trying to take that dividing line between art and craft away and see craft as a greater tool to make artistic expressions and as a mode of communicating what they're trying to say. So all of that is to say that I found viewing functionality in that way to be very beneficial in designing these lockets. Interacting with the lockets and actually experiencing how they each function, I think is where a lot of the inspiration behind their design or where a lot of the meaning can be found. For instance, the container collar is this kind of thick, chunky, heavy, rigid neck piece that almost resembles a bike lock. The focal is actually the clasp. And so in order to take this bike lock neck piece off of you, you actually have to open the barrel container. In doing that, you give the contents the opportunity to fall out. So I was thinking about collecting as hoarding and when trying to kind of let go or rid yourself of that compulsion, you have to, to some degree, let go of these things that you're obsessively collecting. Whereas the collector's locket is still quite personal in that only the wearer has that nice clear view through the glass magnifying lens at what has been collected. But the smaller size and where it hangs on the neck that you can pick it up and the wearer can really take what's in there out of it without taking the necklace off and place new things in it and just the design in general is a bit softer and so it conveys maybe more of a, an earnest feeling when thinking about collecting. I often imagine curiosity as the first point of connection and beginning to shift perspectives. To view something with fresh eyes as if for the first time was something mundane and easily taken for granted. Something like a blade of grass or a discarded piece of plastic on the ground. It's often all it takes to begin expanding the way you experience the world around you and therefore participate within that world. I actually wear the collector's locket almost daily as a way to kind of honor that way of viewing collecting and that act of collecting. The most recent locket I made, I actually made it specifically for this exhibition. I've begun to see these lockets and baskets and viewfinders that I've been making as a way to address perception within a larger body of work. That larger body of work is often questioning human experience and what it means to be a human and how humans 
might view themselves in relationship to all other things and how that understanding of ourselves in relationship to other or nature, what is natural, what is man-made, might affect how we are interacting with the world. So this line of thinking involves a lot of comparison, measuring one thing against another. And so I'm, I'm often looking at some uh, thing that might be considered natural and then comparing it to something that visually looks similar or is made in some similar way that is man-made or a byproduct of something man-made and trying to see where a dividing line can be and also trying to see where those materials overlap. In doing this, I've noticed or tried to pay attention to what my perception is doing. And often it feels like, you know, when I'm looking at something natural, I'm looking at that thing and it's quite difficult to hold something that I consider man-made or that I know other people consider man-made, hold it next to something that I know people consider natural and have them simultaneously be in opposition and still be clearly considering both of them at the same time. So with this locket counterbalance, you're collecting two things that are set apart from each other at opposing ends of a point that pivots where they pivot. And so whatever is heavier is going to fall to the bottom and you can really only pay attention to one thing at a time. And even, you know, if you lift the heavier thing to view it, you're only viewing that thing straight on and you're not able to see the other side and really consider that other thing. And so in this way, considering two things and having them be in opposition makes it impossible to really see them both clearly at the same time. You have to see them as the same thing, in a sense, in order to see them at the same time. So my, my whole point in this is that when we see ourselves as humans, as a species, as individuals, as separate from these other things, we treat those other things as separate from ourselves. And in doing that, we end up harming ourselves in a lot of different ways, environmentally, I mean. It's only when we see ourselves as the same thing as these other things that we start to consider ways of treating the world in such a way that could actually be healthy and more uh, ecologically sound, not so opposing, much more beneficial to all systems. Thank you to the makers from this episode, Lotus, Elena, Anne and Taylor. Also, thank you to ACJ SNI for collaborating with us again for your latest exhibition. A huge thank you to the Arts Council of Northern Ireland for funding this collaboration. For further information about the Association of Contemporary Jewellery and Silversmiths Northern Ireland, ACJSNI, you can visit acjsni.wordpress.com or follow on Instagram at acjsni. If you would like further information about Making Conversations podcast, please visit makingconversationspodcast.com.